history tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 35th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And today we're going to be talking about the life and afterlife of Marilyn Monroe. I'm really looking forward to this, Denise. I've always been a huge fan of hers. So we'll have to change the some like it hot to some like it kind of cold and creepy. Hey, that works. <laughs> I challenge you to sing that. <laughs> I don't We'll sing. make up a song to go with it. We, and We've already had this discussion and agreement that Denise does not sing. But if you all stay tuned to the full episode, towards the end, you will be treated of a rendition of Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday to the President. And uh, it's not actually going to be Marilyn Monroe. It might be one of your hosts. <laughs> I wonder who that might be, huh? The cool thing about when you talk about Marilyn Monroe is not only are we going to be able to talk about the hauntings that are affiliated with her, but I mean, we have conspiracy involved in this as well. So we'll be covering a lot of the conspiracy around her death as well. Before we get into that, we do want to thank those of you who let us know what your favorite podcast has been thus far. We did get a couple of you out there to send us messages. Uh, Phil of Cinema Inferior let us know that the Stanley Hotel was his favorite because he's a huge fan of Stephen King. Red rum, red rum. He also really enjoyed the Velisca Axe Murder House, too. Another creepy place. So we're coming from that demise. It feels a little bit creepy, but we like creepy, so that's good. Well, I listen to Phil's show, so I know he is creepy. Uh, Dan of the Night Story podcast said that his favorite has been Mark Twain. Hmm. And his second favorite was Ghosts in the Bible. Oh, neat. So I thought that was cool. Also along those lines, uh, Dan has asked me to co-host a show with him in April. We're going to talk about the history behind some fairy tales, which sounds fun and intriguing. I will make sure to let you all know when we get that recorded and up and give out the links to all of you guys if you would be interested in hearing about some of the history behind fairy tales. And we also want to give a shout out to Matt. He sent us a comment over on Twitter. He had just found the show and listened to the first podcast and said he really enjoyed it and was looking forward to the rest of them. So so welcome, Matt, and thank you. Yeah, we love that. And he uh, he's into martial arts. So I let him know that you're a seventh degree and I'm a fourth degree black belt. Very cool. Hey, if you want to check out our website, you can do that over at historygoesbump.com. We've got everything you could want to know about the show, where you can find us on social media, where you can listen to the show. If you want to sign up for our newsletter, it's entirely free. You can do that there. We also have our Emporium there. And if you would like to donate to the show, which we would greatly appreciate. And Denise, if anyone wants to get a hold of us via email for feedback or to suggest a future show, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And someone did do that in regards to our last show. We actually got our first negative email, Denise. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I guess we upset someone. Oh, no. So uh, I'm not going to read the email that was sent to us. Uh, the grammar and 
punctuation was so horrendous, I don't want to embarrass the person. But anyway, after they got done basically referring, referencing the, me as being a liar, uh, they were upset that we had been talking about Irish slaves because some people, Denise, have this thing called terminal uniqueness. Would you explain to the listeners what terminal uniqueness is? That's when somebody thinks that their their hardships or their life is the only the only one that's real that you know they're terminally unique and nobody would know what it's like to be in their shoes. Indeed, and my point in talking about Irish slaves was not to diminish what black slaves went through here in America. Obviously, they came against their will. They were in chains. Right. It was a horrible time. It was a horrible black eye on our history. But the point I was trying to make is they were not the only ones. And since we were talking about a location in Ireland and it was getting ready to be St. Patrick's Day, I thought, you know, I just listened to this podcast that day about Irish slavery. And so I thought I would make that point that uh, we there were Irish slaves here, that they were not indentured servants, that they were forced to work against their will. And um, so apparently I was lying and I don't know history and all that other good stuff. So well, I think the thing was, is that there had been no other than, than black it was just slaves black slave after 19... 19- no, it was 1630. After 1630, there were no slaves in America other than blacks. And But that's a fallacy in itself because there's still slaves in America today. Indeed. And where would we see this, Denise? Well, you would see it definitely in the sex trade because mm-hmm. there's a lot of children, women, um, and men that are being sure. held against their will, locked up for the sex trade that have been kidnapped, that are brought, brought here. So, you know, it's sometimes I... I hate it when people will just focus on one area because then we miss the other ones and kind of the old adage, you know, that they came for you and, you know, nobody spoke up for this group and so they took them and then they came for this group and nobody spoke up. So, you know, they took over them and then they came for me and there was nobody left to fight. So we all have to fight the fight together. We can't just be, it's only, you know, my group or whatever to have empathy for all groups because we've had a lot of hardships in this country and still do. Yes. And I mean, how narrow is your definition of slavery? I mean, before we had unions come into America, I would say a lot of the people who are working in America were treated like slaves. Children, women, men were worked to death for hardly any money, endless hours. That to me is a form of slavery. So just because somebody is not forced to do something in chains or what have you does not mean that they are not a slave. And If you look at world history throughout every single era, every race has been in slavery at some point. I don't think there's any race that you could say has never had that, including white men. So to have that terminal uniqueness that nobody suffered like we did, and we deserve some kind of reparations for that. That's why I thought it was ludicrous to even suggest reparations because, you know, we were ta- we were talking about this email, you and I, we were discussing about the horrendous way that the Native Americans had been treated and they were here before anybody else. We forced them off their, you know, their land and put them on these itty bitty little reservations. We gave, gave them, them smallpox. Indeed. Gave them smallpox. Well, you know, I have Native American in my blood. Should I be getting some kind of reparations for that? It just, when you start going down that line, it just gets really ludicrous. So I want to apologize if anybody took what I had said as diminishing black slavery, but that certainly was not our point. We were just trying to uh, indicate that there are other uh, slaves that have been out there. And um, apparently we lost a listener over that, but you know. Well, that's unfortunate because that was, it's just bringing that a lot of people have suffered to come to this country, but that's what made this country so great is that people came they suffered, they overcame, and and now they have the opportunity, you know, to, to be here and to make it what, what America has become. And everybody came here hard, with a hardship, except for the ones that were already here, but then we created hardship for them. So, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. 
Oh, well. We also want to ask you if you would uh, send us, uh, you know, write up some reviews for us, either at Stitcher or at iTunes. We greatly, greatly appreciate those. It, it came to my attention that uh, there are people out there who are getting fake reviews. You know, they're, they're giving each other reviews. This had happened to us early on. Fox reviews. <laughs> we had this guy named Matt McWilliams. He's one of these marketing gurus out here who tells you how to live your most extraordinary life or whatever bullshit. And um, so he had sent me an email. He said, hey, I gave you a five-star review. Will, will you give me one? And I'm going, who is this guy? Now, I have traded five-star reviews with other podcasts because we've actually listened to each other's shows. And, and we know, yes, shows. and yeah. listen to, I mean, I'm subscribed. Every show I've ever reviewed, I'm subscribed to. And uh, I think the same is, is in the same case with podcasters that have given us reviews. So I'm like, I don't even know who this guy is, but, you know, I'm going to go listen to a couple of his shows because I'm not going to review something. It's like somebody asking you for a review of a book you haven't read, you know. So I'm like, I'll go listen. I was like, you know, it's good. It's got good production. I'll give him a five-star review. Well, I go in today, you know, I always like to check to see if we have any new reviews. And I'm like, oh, we had nine. Now we have eight. And I looked and sure enough, he's the one who had pulled his review from us. So I went, oh, I see how this works. So he's got like 200 and something over there. He went around to a bunch of podcasts and said, hey, I gave you a five-star review, got their reviews, and then erased them. They do the same thing on Twitter or two, Denise, they go around and they follow a bunch of people and then they unfollow you the minute you follow them back. Now, unfortunately for people who do that with me, I pay attention to that stuff and I immediately unfollow you too. I don't play games. I don't, I'm not in it to say, oh, look, I've got like a million followers and I'm only following a hundred. I will follow you back unless you don't look legitimate to me or something that I really don't want to have in my feed. I'm not going to follow you back. But generally speaking, here at History Goes Bump, we're going to follow you back. So when I was looking through this, it just so happens that today I'd heard about this other thing. And I won't name names, but it's another one of these marketing guys who's in the business category up in the you know top five or whatever. And he has this little group and there's like, I don't know, over 2,000 people that are members. They pay him $100 a month to be part of this membership. And then they go around giving each other reviews. And I went, now I'm understanding why there's some people who get into new and noteworthy in their first week. And just for the record, we're not paying $100 for reviews. No. I, no. <laughs> everything that we have, I want it to be organic. It's just like the minute we started, I got all these emails about, hey, you can pay me 29 bucks for 500 followers on Twitter. I don't want people who are fake or aren't really listening to the show following. I want organic because I want listeners. That's what I care about she is having organic, people listen. Well, groovy. Now there goes the hippie. There goes the hippie. <laughs> I'm not the one sitting there going, I want organic, organic, only organic. I'm thinking it's Miss Diane that's sounding <laughs> a little bit hippie right now. Would you all agree with me? Yes, you would. Thank yeah, whatever. You. So anyway, this is what we're up against. Because I kept telling Denise, I'm like, how are these shows that only have like one show getting 9,000 downloads and they have like 100 reviews and they're getting up in new and noteworthy because, you know, I, I, I couldn't understand it. Well, now I'm beginning to understand how this is happening. So anyway, we would love to get more of your organic reviews. If you have a moment or two, since this is what we're competing against, we'd love to get your reviews. Now, and even if you're a little bit synthetic and like Mountain Dew and stuff, you can still give us a review. We'll take it. Thank you. We have synthetic listeners. Well, they just might not be organic. <laughs> <laughs> Is it synthetic the opposite of organic? Word lady? I'm thinking synthetic beads not real. <laughs> anyway, I think we better well, start talking about Americans Maryland. Americans do decompose a lot slower than other places because of <laughs> preservatives, just saying. That's true. Maybe we really are synthetic. 
Too many preservatives makes you synthetic. That's what I'm saying. All right, let's get into talking about Marilyn. I'm sure we're boring everybody with our other uh, intro talk. No, is Marilyn organic or synthetic? She's dead now, or maybe not. like to support the show please visit our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com European explorers were searching for antiquities in China in the early 20th century when they discovered several desiccated bodies in the Tarim Basin near Xinjiang, China. That discovery would stir up controversy as to the true origin of the Tarim mummies. The mummies have blonde hair and long noses. These distinguishing characteristics, along with the fact that traces of an Indo-European Tocharian language have been found in the area, have led researchers to claim the mummies are Europoid. Professor of Chinese, Victor T. Mayer from the University of Pennsylvania, took a team to the Tarim Basin to gather DNA samples, and the DNA from 52 mummies was tested. The results suggested that Europeans and Asians intermingled far before most archaeologists had thought. Professor Mayer wrote that the discovery was, quote, extremely important because they link up Eastern and Western Eurasia at a formative stage of civilization, Bronze Age and Early Iron Age in a much closer way than has ever been done before, end quote. The Terran mummies date back to 1800 BC. These Indo-European nomads are thought to have brought bronze work and chariots to the area and taught those living in the East how to make and use them. Pliny the Elder wrote to the Emperor Claudius that a group from an embassy near the Terran Basin claimed that the people there, quote, exceeded the ordinary human height, had flaxen hair and blue eyes, and made an uncouth sort of noise by way of talking, end quote. The Terran mummies are on display at the Xinjiang Museum. The idea that Caucasians were in the area of the Terran Basin and that their bodies were preserved in such a way to enable these findings certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This day in history. On this date, March 21st in 1788, the Great New Orleans Fire destroyed most of the buildings in New Orleans. New Orleans was founded in 1718 by the French. It was named for the Regent of France, Philip II, Duke of Orleans. The Spanish later took control of the city. In the afternoon of Good Friday, which happened to be March 21, 1788, a fire broke out at Army Treasurer Don Vicente José Nunez's home on Toulouse Street. Normally, church bells would have rung out, alerting the town people to the danger and signaling for help, but since it was Good Friday, the priest refused to allow the bells to be rung. The fire ranged, and within five hours, nearly every building in the city was destroyed, including the church that would not ring its bells. The army barracks was destroyed along with everything in the French Quarter and the jail. In total, 856 structures were consumed. Even the two working fire engines that fought the fire were destroyed. The people of New Orleans were devastated. Governor Esteban Miro reported to Spanish authorities, quote, 
If the imagination could describe what our senses enable us to feel from sight and touch, reason itself would recoil in horror. And it is no easy matter to say whether the sight of an entire city in flames was more horrible to behold than the suffering and pitiable condition in which everyone was involved, end quote. And that the city was, quote, now in rooms, transformed within the space of five hours into an arid and fearful desert. Such was a sad ending of a work of death, the result of 70 years of industry, end quote. What people see now in the French Quarter was built post the two great fires in New Orleans. A second fire would destroy most of the buildings that survived the first in 1794. History Goes Bump Podcast. No other actress has ever had the notoriety and fame or stirred the emotions quite like Marilyn Monroe. She was a legend in her own time, and that legend has only grown since her untimely death. Not only was her rise to fame epic, but her personal life was a tale fit for the silver screen filled with toward love affairs that included a president, drugs, scandal, tragedy, conspiracy, and a mysterious death. Such a tumultuous life is hard to completely snuff out, and perhaps Marilyn Monroe's spirit continues to live on in the afterlife, not just in our memories, but as a spirit still walking among us. On June 1, 1926, Norma G. Mortensen was born in Los Angeles, California to Gladys Pearl Baker. There's confusion when it comes to who was Norma Jean's father. Her birth certificate has Martin Mortensen as her father, and that is who she was initially named for. But her mother would change the surname to that of her first husband, and that name was Baker. Gladys Baker was married to Mortensen, but they had apparently separated before Norma Jean was born. Their divorce would be final in 1928. Norma Jean had been told by her mother that a man named Charles Stanley Gifford was her father. Thus began the tumultuous life of Norma Jean. Norma Jean's mother was a mental wreck, and so she turned the little girl over to foster parents. In 1933, Gladys took custody of Norma Jean back, which was a huge mistake. Norma Jean would witness episode after episode of her mother's mental instability until Gladys was finally hauled off to the state hospital. Norma Jean then went to live with her mother's best friend, Grace McKee. It was McKee who would teach Norma Jean how to get all dolled up with the makeup, and she would take her to the movies, and she encouraged her to become a movie star. Grace married when Norma Jean was nine, and she sent Norma Jean to an orphanage. Norma Jean was in and out of foster care, and then Grace came and brought her back to her home, where her husband tried to sexually assault Norma Jean several times. Norma Jean would be moved in and out of this home several times over the next few years. One of the places was with her great-aunt, Olive Brunings, whose son would rape Norma Jean. After this, she ended up with an aunt named Anna Lower. Norma Jean would always remember the time she spent with Lower fondly, and later in life, she would visit Lower's grave many times. Great start to her life, huh? God, I, some of these foster kids, what they go through. And for me to name off all the different places that she lived, it would have taken too long. But I mean, she was really in and out of a ton of different homes. And I mean, this the, the most stable one that she was in was with her mother's best friend. And can you imagine she marries this guy who keeps trying to sexually assault this kid. And then she goes to this other foster home and gets raped there. You wonder why she got a little screwy? 
Well, and her mom is nuts. Yeah, so. well, th- but that's definitely the makings of a, a very tumultuous life later on. Indeed. It only gets better from here. Oh, yay. <laughs> in 1942, Norma Jean moved back in with Grace. She was in high school at this time, and she started a relationship with a boy named James Doherty. Grace and her husband needed to move for a job offer, so Norma Jean was going to be shipped off to an orphanage again. Grace decided to pressure Doherty to marry Norma Jean instead, and he reluctantly did marry her. Norma Jean was barely 16 at the time. In 1943, Doherty joined the Merchant Marines to fight in World War II. Norma Jean moved in with Doherty's mother. Norma Jean got a job at an airplane factory, radio plane munitions factory, and it would be here that her superstar life would begin. David Conover was hired by the Army to take pictures of women working in the factory to promote the war effort. Conover was taken with Norma Jean and recognized how photogenic she was, and he told her to apply at the Blue Book Model Agency. Within two years, Norma Jean had appeared on the cover of 33 magazines and had changed her brunette locks to blonde. She felt abandoned in her marriage, and Grace helped her to obtain a divorce from Dowdery. The modeling got the attention of 20th Century Fox Studios, and she was brought in for a screen test. They signed her with a contract that lasted for six months and paid her $125 a week. Ben Lyon was a Fox executive that would take Norma Jean under his arm and guide her. He suggested that she change her name so Norma Jean Baker became Norma Jean Monroe. She got the surname Monroe from her mother's maiden name. The name still did not sound right, so they tried getting rid of Norma, but Jean Monroe sounded common. Ben Lyon wondered about using the name Marilyn. It was lucky since it had double M's and it just sounded nice. Norma Jean thought that it sounded like Mary Lynn and she hated that name. But Lyon convinced her and Marilyn Monroe would become her name, a name that would live on in legend forever. Marilyn started out as an extra. She took singing and dance lessons. Her first speaking part came in the movie Scooter Who, Scooter Hey. She had one line. Her next movie, Dangerous Years, gave her nine lines to say. 20th Century Fox did not renew Marilyn's contract and she went over to Columbia. Columbia signed her and gave her a role in Ladies of the Chorus. She then was dumped by Columbia, and she decided to go back to modeling for a while, and it was at this time that her infamous nude pictures were taken by photographer Tom Kelly. The year was 1949. Marilyn then signed on with talent agent Johnny Hyde, with whom it is rumored she had an affair. Hyde got her some bit parts in low-budget movies and then got her an addition with John Houston. Houston liked her and gave her a role in The Asphalt Jungle, playing the mistress to an aging criminal. The film was nominated for four Academy Awards, and critics took notice of Marilyn and gave her rave reviews. And acting for a director like John Houston was no small deal. He was big. Based on this success, Marilyn was given a role in All About Eve. The critics liked her again, and this led to Hyde landing a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox for Marilyn. She also got a nose job at this time. Several films were made by Marilyn at this time with lower budgets and moderate success. So Marilyn decided to take some college courses and she enrolled at the University of California studying art and literature. At the time of her death, Marilyn had 400 books in her library. She was not a blonde bimbo by any means. And then in 1952, those pesky nude photos surfaced in a calendar. Marilyn had given a fake name when the pictures were taken, but people who saw the calendar said the girl sure looked like Marilyn Monroe. Scandal started to percolate, and the studio scrambled for a way to handle the situation. Marilyn was not only beautiful, but she was smart, and she handled the situation brilliantly. She told the studio that she was going to tell the truth, and she did. Marilyn explained that she was desperate at the time and needed rent money, and so she posed for the photos for the money. The public sympathized with her, 
and Playboy put her in their first issue, and thus Marilyn became their first Playmate of the Month. That's one thing I love about the story of Marilyn Monroe, is she was not what everybody thought she was. I mean, can you imagine? 400 books, and these weren't just torrid romance, you know, paperbacks. She was a very smart woman. And I am a big fan of old movies, and I love her movies. She is so good in them. I can see why they wanted her in those movies. Baseball player and legend Joe DiMaggio entered her life at this time and would remain a fixture in her life until her death. The two began dating, and Marilyn took on roles in several films at this time, none of which got her much notice. Then came the movie Niagara. This was her first big role, and she played a femme fatale, plotting to kill her husband. Critics did not care for her overtly sexual portrayal of her character, but it was this image that she would carry forward on the advice of her makeup artist friend, Whitey Snyder. And I've seen this film, and she is great in it. And it, I mean, this is really where the blonde bombshell came out. It's just the swaying of the hips, and, and she played a femme fatale very well. I mean, you were like, she's nuts. She's going to kill her husband. She <laughs> wanted to push him over the wall. You know, She was going to send him into Niagara. The musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes came next, and Marilyn got a chance to really shine by singing and dancing. Her memorable rendition of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is unforgettable. And for anybody who's seen Madonna's mm-hmm. Material Girl video, that's exactly where she got that idea from. It is from that scene completely, and she dresses just like Marilyn in it. Yep. She's by far no Marilyn and certainly can't sing like Marilyn. That was another thing. Marilyn could sing and dance. She was just, she was very, very talented. Although I will say Madonna is also a very talented, smart woman, too. That's true, and she still keeps going to this mm-hmm. day. I mean, you know, there's not too many 50-year-olds that are still cranking out pop hits that are making the you know top 40 and stuff so she has been very smart with her career as well jane russell co-starred and the two women became fast friends jane russell's another one of those Hmm. they just don't make women like that anymore (laughs) diane loves all the older women (laughs) or all the the old movies women she's always like look at this one look at this one Ooh, baby Mm." and i know the guys (laughs) who listen are going to agree with me and ladies you're going to agree as well the stick thin Women that they have, I mean, Kira Knightley, come on. These women back in this day, and I mean, they were just, they were what a woman should be. Right. Filled out in all the right ways. And so it's sort of like you want to take both of them to dinner, but one's to feed them just because they look like they're starving, <laughs> and the other one's because she's hot, right? Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Gotcha. That's exactly what I'm so saying. So both get dinner dates, but for different reasons. <laughs> gotcha. Russell learned that Marilyn had terrible stage fright. And that this was the reason Marilyn was always late for filming. So she started escorting her to the set. Russell said of Marilyn that she was, quote, very shy and very sweet and far more intelligent than people gave her credit for, end quote. So this is something I wanted to make sure that people knew because it's, it's not well known. You hear rumors Marilyn was always late to the set. She was always making everybody wait. It was just horrible. Maybe later on it might have been drug related. But early on, this is stage fright that's going on. She could not leave her dressing room because she was terrified. Well, and that might have what been eventually started leading to the drug use. Just saying. Exactly. To cover that. To that help fright. her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Marilyn had fallen into a place of typecasting at this point and could not get serious roles. She started in the Western River of No Return and she felt that it was beneath her. Her next film was to be with Frank Sinatra, but she did not show up for work and 20th Century Fox suspended her. DiMaggio and Marilyn got married at the same time in 1954. The marriage lasted a year and ended due to DiMaggio's jealousy, both of Marilyn's fame and his belief that she would cheat on him. 
Fox lifted Marilyn's suspension, and she starred in There Is No Business Like Show Business. Next came The Seven-Year Itch, which was one of Marilyn's greatest roles. Her iconic skirt-blowing scene is from this movie. The movie gave Marilyn real power, and she renegotiated her Fox contract and gained creative control of her roles. And if anybody hasn't seen The Seven-Year Itch, I you have to see it. It is a fabulous movie. It's my second favorite movie that she ever made. It was just, she's so funny in it. Wonderful comedic actress. Marilyn concentrated heavily on acting lessons, hoping she could do stage work, but her stage fright was too overwhelming. She did win the praises of her acting coach, Lee Strasberg, who said of Marilyn, quote, I have worked with hundreds and hundreds of actors and actresses, and there are only two that stand out way above the rest. Number one is Marlon Brando, and the second is Marilyn Monroe, end quote. Marilyn began dating Arthur Miller in 1955. In 1956, Marilyn made the romantic comedy Bus Stop, and she garnered a Golden Globe nomination for her performance. The Prince and the Showgirl was her next film, starring opposite Laurence Olivier, and she received international attention for this role. She won the Italian equivalent of an Academy Award for her performance. Miller and Marilyn married this year as well. Their marriage would last five years and end after their collaboration on The Misfits. And I'll never forget when I had to read Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller in school, and I found out that he had been married to Marilyn Monroe, I was like, what was she thinking? <laughs> I mean, this woman could have any man she wanted. And she was, it just goes to show she liked a brain too. So moving on, one of Diane's favorite, is actually it's her absolute favorite Monroe film, Some Like It Hot, was made in 1959. Marilyn was nearly impossible to work with on set, but Billy Wilder considered the film his biggest success, and it was nominated for six Academy Awards. Marilyn won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Comedy. Marilyn's health began to deteriorate, and she began heavily relying on prescription medication. She would mix sleeping pills and alcohol. John Houston directed Marilyn's final film, The Misfits. Production was nuts with Marilyn landing in the hospital for 10 days. The film was not a commercial success at the time, but it is a classic today with Clark Gable and Marilyn's performances highly praised. Marilyn won another Golden Globe for this film. Clark Gable died of a heart attack 10 days after they wrapped up filming, and everybody blamed Marilyn for it because she made them wait so long on the set for her to show up and was such a hard person to work with. So, uh, and she The actually, power of a woman. I know. She actually said she felt guilty about it, too. I'm sure she did not lead to his heart attack. It was probably the lifestyle he was living. <laughs> you think? In 1962, Marilyn began filming Something's Gotta Give, but she spent much of the time ill and she was eventually dismissed. At this same time, Marilyn gave a small performance at Madison Square Garden for President John Kennedy's birthday party. She sang happy birthday and thanks for the memories to the president. Denise, we have this thing called copyright where you can't play copyrighted stuff on your podcasts. So, of course, any of the music that people listen to on here is licensed by us and we own the rights to or what have you. But I thought that we could give people a little taste of what that was like. We? <laughs> I'm going to give people a little taste of what that's like. Ah, gotcha. So you can imagine that you have, I can't remember who was introducing her, but Marilyn was late. And he actually, when she finally got there, they announced her like three times before she finally got on the stage. And he actually said, and now here is the late Marilyn Monroe. And she actually was dead shortly thereafter. Oh, wow. That's, that's kind of creepy on words right there. Yeah. So uh, imagine I'm a buxom blonde with a fur coat all wrapped around me. 
nowhere in fur in this house, girlfriend. <laughs> and I, okay, it's she has a fox fur on. It, it's a fake one, not an F O X. I've shaked myself out of it, and I've handed it to the uh, MC who's just introduced me. And there I'm is the MC, I guess. Yeah, here, MC, take my fur coat. Well, who's going to be JFK sitting in the front row? Rafiki. Okay, I've got Rafiki sitting in front of me. Well, Tiana's not in front of me. Well, I'm sure that Jacqueline was there. So, okay, we've got Jacqueline and John Kennedy sitting here in front of me. And I'm sure that Jackie O is not going to be happy with this little performance. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Hey, you're right. Jackie didn't like it. (laughs) Now I got to start over. Rough. That was Tiana. Thanks, Tiana. Okay, so I'm making the dogs howl. <laughs> All right, here we go again. Take two. Roll it. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to And then the crowd goes wild. Marilyn brought a home at 12305 Fifth Helena Drive in Brentwood, California in 1962. It was the only home she ever owned, and she had only lived there for six months when she died in the bedroom of this home. The circumstances surrounding her death fall into three different categories, accident, suicide, or murder. Let's explore all of these, starting with accident. The medical examiner, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, ruled that Marilyn died of acute barbiturate poisoning. Did she accidentally overdose herself? There's also the possibility that she was poisoned accidentally by an enema that was administered to her that was contraindicated with another drug she was taking. Then there are those who think Marilyn was suicidal and took an overdose of drugs on purpose. People claim she had been depressed and she had been recently dropped by Fox Studios, but they did finally rework her contract for double her salary. She also reportedly had just had an abortion. Whitey Snyder saw Marilyn on her final week and said she never looked better and was very excited about her future. There are those who think Marilyn was murdered, and Diane is one of them. And I know that you don't have an opinion on this yet, Denise, so as we share this evidence, we'll see where you stand if you think it's accident, suicide, or murder. All righty then. And that double her salary meant she was going to get a million dollars. So this was not a woman who was like kicked to the curb and not going to get something. And a million dollars back then was, I mean, a million dollars now is big money, but a million back then was really big money. And the interesting thing about this home that she had in Brentwood, this was not a big fancy schmancy place. It was a very small little place, still is to this day. She only paid a few, a little bit over a hundred and something thousand for it. And um, so she wasn't real extravagant with it. And she designed it and everything herself and put her you know, her own furniture in there, went down to Mexico and got some really neat furnishings for it. Who would murder Marilyn Monroe and why? John and Bobby Kennedy were both having affairs with Marilyn, and while it was just a fling for President Kennedy, Bobby and Marilyn had an intense relationship. Monroe kept a diary of all her affairs in a little red book, which has never been found to this day. Marilyn was under the impression that Bobby was going to leave Ethel for her. 
Obviously, that was never going to happen since Bobby was a Catholic with his eyes set on the White House. Marilyn kept a diary that we'll never know the contents of, but we imagine there was a lot of information in there that the Kennedys would not want out in the public. So we have motive. Now let's look at the evidence. In the book, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe by J. Margolis and Richard Buskin, the authors make claims that actor Peter Lawford, who was the brother-in-law of the Kennedys, confessed that he knew what happened to Marilyn. The authors also had eyewitness testimony from paramedic James Edwin Hall. The story goes that Bobby went to Marilyn's place to break things off permanently. A fight ensued, and a bodyguard with Kennedy gave Marilyn a shot to calm her. Bodyguards then administered an enema with the 13 to 19 nimutals and 17 chloral hydrates crushed up in it. This left Marilyn comatose, and the group left. After the housekeeper found Marilyn unconscious, she called paramedics. James Edwin Hall gave Marilyn CPR because she had a weak pulse. He noticed that there was no vomit or any other drug odor in Marilyn's mouth, which is very unusual in overdoses. There was also no water by the bedside, so how did Marilyn take up to 64 pills, not to mention that the amount of pills seems almost impossible for a human to take at one time? Dr. Ralph Greenson, who was Marilyn's psychiatrist and a man she could also take down because of the affair they were having, arrives on the scene and claims to be Marilyn's doctor, so Hall lets him take over, even though he notices the doctor seems to have no clue what he is doing. He then witnesses Greenson take out a huge hypodermic needle, fill it with the liquid, and puts the needle into Marilyn's heart. Marilyn is dead after that. Peter Lawson claimed that this happened in the guest cottage and that Marilyn's body was moved to her bedroom and placed face down in bed for photographs and to back up the suicide story. They needed to prevent lividity from showing that she'd been on her back. Pictures showing Marilyn face down in bed back up this story, and it is only common sense that paramedics are going to take a body out of bed and administer CPR unless a person is stone-cold dead and Marilyn was not. So for anybody who has seen pictures of Marilyn dead in bed, she is face down, laying in the bed, which I, you know, her housekeeper said she came in and found her dead in bed holding the phone. And there was no phone in her hand in this picture or anything. And to me, it doesn't make any sense unless you come in and that person is already in rigor mortis and is cold, cold, cold to the touch. Who is not going to pull that body out of bed and start CPR immediately? That doesn't even make any common sense that she was not taken out of bed by these paramedics. Now, the official story says that the paramedics were called and sent away, but um, yeah. Police arrived at the house at 4.30 a.m. and noticed fresh sheets on the bed and that the housekeeper is washing sheets in the middle of the night and that there's no water for washing down pills. Marilyn could not take pills without water. She's like me, Denise. I don't know if you have this problem, but when pills, I, I have a hard time swallowing any pill, but when they're bigger, I definitely have to have a lot of water. Well, she was the same way, and she would gag at times, even with taking pills with water. So, again, this woman supposedly had taken up to 64 pills without any water. And it's not even, I mean, it's not humanly possible for somebody to take 64 pills. It's just Undertaker Guy Hockett arrives around 5.30 a.m. and claims that Marilyn died between 9.30 and 11.30 p.m. Police get statements from everyone, but the housekeeper keeps changing her story. Wonder who got to her, huh? Exactly. The coroner finds no proof of drugs in Marilyn's stomach, and the only way there would be no residue is if she took the pills over a stretch of time. If she had taken the pills slowly, she would have been dead long before she could have taken the amount found in her bloodstream. There was no evidence she shot up with drugs. The amount of drugs in her system would have killed 30 people. 
But in the end, they still ruled Marilyn's death a suicide. So now you got to wonder, obviously, these extra drugs were issued via an enema. What, did she give herself an enema? Did she have somebody else give her an enema full of these drugs? Yeah, right. So what do you think? I don't know. It's starting to look a little fishy here. Or a lot fishy. And for people who don't know, Peter Lawson, who was the brother-in-law to the Kennedys, he was around all the time. So he knew everything that was going in, uh, on, all the ins and outs. They would land their helicopters on his property so that they could go have their illicit affairs. So he knew that Bobby was in town, had landed his helicopter at his place, and that he'd gone over to Marilyn's place. And she just happens to end up dead that same evening after she's, you know... She's a smart woman. She was thrown around. I am going to have a press conference and people are going to know about you, Kennedy boys. Yeah. Oh, you couldn't have that back then. No way, no how. Especially Bobby wanted to be president and, you know, JFK was planning on being president again. Joe DiMaggio made the funeral arrangements. There was a public viewing and the coffin Marilyn was buried in was the top of the line. It was a hermetically sealed antique silver finished 48 ounce heavy gauge solid bronze casket that was lined with champagne-colored satin silk. Only 25 people were allowed at the service. Marilyn was buried at the Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles, California, in a pink marble crypt at the corridor of Memories Number 24. For 20 years after her death, DiMaggio would have a half-dozen roses placed at her memorial three times a week. She always claimed that he was her greatest love, and I think it was reciprocated. I believe he never got married after they got their divorce. Yeah. But was this truly the end of life for Marilyn on this side of the veil? With so much turmoil in her life while she was living and with such mysterious circumstances surrounding her death, the possibility that she would be at unrest is real. And there is much eyewitness testimony out there about Marilyn's afterlife. It would seem Marilyn has many locations she still holds dear and visits regularly, even all these years after her death. Several hotels seem to still be stomping ground for Marilyn. As we covered in a podcast, Episode 5, featuring the Roosevelt Hotel, Marilyn had a suite where she lived for nearly two years. A mirror that had once been in that suite was moved to a wall in the lower elevator foyer. People claimed to see the reflection of Marilyn in the mirror. Recently, the mirror was moved into storage. Marilyn is not stuck to just haunting her old mirror, though. She has been seen and felt in her suite which was room 246. She also has appeared in the Center Grill, and the scent of her perfume lingers. L.A. ghost story expert Richard Carradine claims that the ghost of a blonde woman has been seen in the penthouse suites of the Beverly Hilton and that he believes that their apparition is Marilyn. Hotel guests and staff both have reported seeing her. The Knickerbocker Hotel bar was a favorite haunt for Marilyn when she was married to Joe DiMaggio. She is still seen at times in the bar, which also is reportedly haunted by Rudolph Valentino. That sounds like a place I'd like to hang out. Yeah, it's all your old time guys. I know. Let's bring over Rudolph Valentino in Maryland. I, that, I would just have a great time. I wonder who else used to go there. I've heard that the Knickerbocker's very haunted, so we'll eventually be covering that at some point. Marilyn Monroe, of course, has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Many people claim to have seen her apparition at the star's location. Sometimes a pink mist is witnessed, and Marilyn still seems to enjoy the Cadillac she once owned. She's been seen in the vehicle, particularly sitting in the back seat. Marilyn's graveside at Westwood Memorial Park has also been the scene of afterlife sightings of the actress. Her ghost has been seen floating above the tomb, and orb pictures appear in many photos, which, of course, could be attributed to a variety of things. Visitors at night are kept from the cemetery by a gate, but people claim to see flashes of light 
near Maryland's Crypt. Maryland's former home in Brentwood is where she seems to be most active. Every room has a story about a sighting. Housekeepers claim to hear a woman humming even though they are alone in the house. Occasionally, the humming turns to soft singing. Items go missing in the kitchen often or are moved around. In the bedroom where she died, she has been seen hovering over the area where her bed was located. Marilyn claimed that the home was the only place where she had felt truly safe and secure. Is that why she still wants to stay at this beautiful and charming home? Marilyn Monroe was so much more than just the blonde bombshell. Her legacy lives on, but does her spirit. Does Marilyn continue to haunt her old haunts? Might you spot Marilyn one day sitting near her crypt or dancing about in a mirror? That is for you to decide. Wow, so that was a fun show to do. I really enjoyed uh, getting into the meat behind Marilyn Monroe. I know, and it's just amazing. You you always see people, but it kind of goes that old adage that we talk about. People judge people from the outside of what they see now without even realizing everything they came through to get there. And so it's just um, something that everybody has a story, you know, no matter how put together they seem. And maybe instead of judging people, find out their story and see what they're really about. And it always makes you wonder with a lot of these starlets and, and singers who've died young, what more could have they gone on to do if they'd continued to live? I know, and it, it is so sad with the success of life. Sometimes those ghosts, so to speak, from the past um, haunt them and they never can overcome. You know, you just think of how many very talented, very amazing people have gone by the wayside, just like Marilyn Monroe, whether, well, hers very possibly was murder, but many of them do let their demons get a hold of them. Exactly. And aside from the fact that she was more than likely murdered, she still did have a drug and alcohol problem. And you've got to wonder if maybe she had a touch of mental illness, you know, like her mother did, and that maybe that's what she was using to try to put those demons down that were chasing her like that. Our next show is going to be back here in the center of oddity and the supernatural in our home state of Florida. We're going to go over to Cedar Key and talk about the Island Hotel. Da, da, da. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> we are so glad that you guys joined us for this show. Hope you enjoyed it. We look forward to talking to you on the next one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.